Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's pull list for new comics on sale September 30th, 2020, a.k.a. my daughter's first birthday. I'm Ryan Panagos, wow. a.k.a. H&M. And I'm wow, because I didn't know that fact. But also, my name is Tucker Marcus. Hi. Hi. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the new comics on sale this week. Uh, which for release date are tomorrow. Um, yeah, daughter's first birthday. It is wild. Uh, we are not here though to talk about my Baby daughter ex- exclusively. <laughs> uh, Tucker, what uh, what's going on on your side of the board? Uh, not much. You know, I um, I, I'm I'm strangely excited already at this time of the year um for Halloween season. So I like I went out. I bought some like little orange lights hanging those up i'm gonna like i i got my list of flicks that i'm gonna watch not a horror movie person but you know what i did on my own halloween three yes season of the witch oh man i love halloween three so much (laughs) season of the witch rules so hard this makes me very happy but we have to talk about new comics as well as do a really fun reading club episode this week with Leah Williams, writer of X Factor and many other books. Uh, we are talking about the Magic Limited series from the early mid 80s by Chris Claremont and Sal and John Buscema and Ron Friends. And it's, it's really good. You're going to hear us talk about that a little bit later. But Tucker, let's first dive into uh, the new books this week. Let's do it. We're starting out with a bang with Avengers number 36. It is by Jason Aaron and Javier Garon, with colors by Jason Keith and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. The entire issue is just kind of operating at a fever pitch. It is just so fast. It's just taking you through the action um, of the issue at such a quick pace But everything means something. Everything has a setup. Everything is there. You have um, uh, you have so much that's being brought into it, and there's more questions that are asked. There's some really cool payoff moments. It's really really awesome. It feels like you know we just keep building and building and building. It's great stuff. What that actually means here is a throwdown between Moon Knight and Black Panther. One of those classic things where I didn't know. It's exactly what I wanted. It is so cool to see them not just fighting. And I think this is the mastery of a writer like Jason Aaron and then an artist like Javi, you know, and his ability to pull that off um, is just a damn delight to see. There's really, really cool stuff happening with Iron Man and Captain Marvel in here as well that I really loved. This issue was one of my favorites in recent memory. It's just really, really awesome for Avengers. It really is. Um, All right, let's move on to Falcon and Winter Soldier, number three, written by Derek Landy, pencils by Federico Vincentini, colors by Matt Mila, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Um, I kind of love the new character that's been established in this limited series. His name is The Natural, and he is just a a natural-born killer. (laughs) I like hated myself for doing the pun, but he is this like very talented, uh, you know, killer who is working his way for, for Hydra and doing all this stuff. But what is, you know, you've got this idea of like, oh, it's Falcon and Winter Soldier and they're trying to stop this kid and all this other stuff. This issue kind of takes 
all the the ideas that you expect it to do and sort of like turns it and and makes it really funny and cute and sad and sweet at the same time you have great you know banter between uh bucky and sam but you also have them like humanizing uh, a situation which could just be punch punch kick kick there's a lot more to it and a lot of conversations and and really warm possibility uh it's all like sort of interesting twists and turns at the heart of what could have been just a very awesome straightforward superhero uh fight punch series and you know at they're also trying to deal with Hydra and find a new leader of Hydra, uh, which has one of my favorite last page reaction balloon dialogue balloons uh, that we'll see this week. I won't spoil it, but it is it's a hoot. Oh yeah. Uh, next up, we have Fantastic Four number twenty four. It is written, of course, by Dan Slott with art by Paco Medina, colors by Jesus Abertov, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Um, and I want to give extra emphasis to Paco and Jesus there because there is some really, really fun stuff going on uh, for the art of this issue. It's been kind of overwhelming in the best way. All of the stuff that's gone on, all the stuff that got kicked off in X-Men that was then started to be explored in FF and then X-Men Fantastic Four by Chip Zdarsky. Everything going on with Franklin Richards um, in the midst of Ten of Swords, in the midst of Empire. It's so much fun to dig back into that here and see how, you know, he is managing life between New York and Krakoa and the decisions he's made and the relationship that he has with you know, his aunt and uncle, his parents, you know, whoever it might be, is really, really, really fun and fascinating. We get a great argument between Johnny and Iceman in here, which I loved. Um, and then we go back into the past. And why I mentioned that our team earlier is because um, I think in a situation like this, I would expect a different penciler and colorist to come on board and do the this sequence. You know what I mean? I would expect... One team to do the framing sequence in the modern day and then another team to do the the kind of, you know, classic version of it. But it's the same team throughout. And that is quite a feat. Um, just such a fun kind of delightful story that we get here between these different framing sequences and things like that. It's just great to be back with the FF in a book like this after everything that went on in Empire Come, it feels a little bit like coming home. It's really, really nice. And there's a bunch of exciting stuff to continue to come for the first family. Yeah. Speaking of exciting stuff, here's a cool one. It's Giant Size X-Men Tribute to Ween and Cockrum number one. So this one is cool. The idea is they, um, the, the X-Men office, uh, Jordan White and team, they wanted to take the original story and script and concept of Giant Size X-Men, the 1975 classic, and as a way to celebrate its 45th anniversary, they wanted to um, give each page of the book to a different creative team of artists. And so they come each page is drawn and redrawn by a different, you know, whether it's a single artist painting such as Alex Ross or Mark Brooks or artist team like Gurehiro or, you know, writer artist teams like Chris Samney back at Marvel for this page with Matthew Wilson or David Baldian and Jesus Abertov or, you know, I mean, the the creative list here is incredible and it's it's really really cool if you want 
new art uh, pages by Phil Noto or Carmen Canero or Aaron Cooter or Raza or Marco Caquetto. I mean, there's the it's, it's amazing. There's so many people involved in this book. Um, there's some back matter in here sort of detailing the process of it, talking with uh, some folks connected to Le- Ween and Cockrum. Um, if you've never read the original Giant Size X-Men, I would say read the original first just to have a sense of like yeah. what they're riffing on. Cause this is like, it's like a cover song where a lot of it's the same, but a lot of it is also very different um, because the story stays the same. Almost all the dialogue stays the same. They actually updated some stuff to be a little bit more contemporary. Uh, not a lot, very, very little. Um, but you know, when you have page one by Alex Ross, page two by Kevin Nolan, page three by Chris Samney and Matt Wilson, like, you're now just, you're like jazzing it up, baby. It's awesome. It's really, really cool. Um, I highly suggest you you check it out. It's, it's, it's a fun one. Going on now to Immortal Hulk, The Threshing Place, number one. Uh, this is written by Jeff Lemire with art by Mike Del Mundo, uh, with colors by Mike Del Mundo and Marco Defonso, uh, with letters by VCs Corey Pettit. This is kind of one of those that I don't want to spoil too much about. We get this story of this character who is kind of, you know, visiting uh, America's heartland. Um, and the events that unfold from there are, I'll say this, they take complete advantage of Mike Del Mundo's art, which is a big statement because that man can do anything he is a freak, and the <laughs> images that we get in this are unbelievable. Literally some of my favorite pages of the year so far. Some of the most mind-bending, unusual, strange things, and it kind of comes out of this quiet story in a way. It's it's strangely a very quiet, placid story, and at the same time, a wild, uh, body horror, crazy, immortal Hulk story like we would expect. This is one I could talk about for a really, really long time. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's move to Marvel's X number five story by Alex Ross and Jim Kruger. Script by Jim Kruger. Art by Welby. Letters by VCs Corey Pettit. I I love, love, love the original Earth X series and, the, you know, the entire original trilogy of Earth, Universe and Paradise X. But it's so bleak. Because that the you know the world is a terrible place in that story, um, but there's heroes that have to rise up, and it is also beautiful at the same time. This is kind of almost the reverse in some ways, where it's um, the heroes and the hope and everything is there, and there's the possibility that like the good stuff could still happen, and they can save the day, and everything's gonna be okay. But it's the prequel to Earth X and that those other stories. Um, it's it's a beautiful, really cool story. I love it. It's about you know, the hero is trying to work with the last human on Earth to find a way to save humanity. And there's great little character beats, whether it's Icarus of the Eternals or Beast or Ant-Man slash Giant-Man or, you know, a bunch of really, really nasty villains. Um, there's a lot in here for Marvel Universe fans. Um, and I would say if you have any inkling of checking out the Earth X stuff or have read it in the past, definitely check out Marvel's X. Next up, we have Marvel Zombies Resurrection number two. It's written by Philip Kennedy Johnson with art by Leonard Kirk, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. There were a 
bunch of things in here that I was so delighted to see. So many different choices that I'm really excited by. One is just this Sentinel character that is in here that I think is so perfectly crafted. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and that uh, I think is the ability to balance um, humor with the horror in here, I think is a real show of skill from Philip. Uh, and uh, then, you know, the wild story that comes out of that, the different characters that end up getting involved, which I don't want to spoil. It's really cool. Some of the different takes on characters we might have known in the past is really, really cool. Um, and at the end of the day, you got Blade in here. So, uh, you know, any story with Blade I'm on board with, I'm like in a constant state of like, blade dehydration and anytime i get a blade comic i'm just drinking it up like crazy i don't care where i don't care when i just want it i need it all the time and this uh gave me that it's really 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 fun on to savage avengers number 12 written by jerry duggan pencils by adam gorham colors by java tartaglia letters by vcs travis lanham i'm gonna give a big big spoiler right at the top here so if you don't want any spoilers for this book skip ahead a minute or two the spoiler is the book opens up with dr strange and electra having floaty magic sex and that's how the <laughs> book starts get ready for it everybody it is it is like the look on strange's face in that scene yeah is one of my favorite panels. I, I really need to get Jerry to send me the script because I want to know if he wrote <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah. in there or if that's just Adam's masterful way of, of depicting the scene. It is wild. The two of them, uh, Electra and Doctor Strange, are teaming up because they have to fight back against Kulin Goth, the evil sorcerer from, you know, eons and ages ago who has been doing terrible, terrible things and who has been basically killing and eating magicians for uh, millennia and it's it's wild there's the sort of uh rebirth of dr voodoo in here and sort of getting him back to a different slash new slash old status quo which has got an amazing sequence of events that gets us there you got a really cool shumagarath bit uh in here where uh conan is finding a can of uh of beer and fighting a monster and it like adam's facial expressions in this book the, the work he does with the acting is so dang good it's wonderful and yes conan's in here electra's in here there you've got this whole big crew there the last page actually shows you what the uh team for the secret avengers crew is going to look like in the uh in the coming issues and it's awesome all right, next up is one that I'm very excited about. I know a lot of people are very excited about. It is Shang-Chi number one. It's written by Jean Luen Yang with art by DK Ruan, flashback art by Philip Tan, colors by Sebastian Chang, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. Obviously, this is a time where people are super excited to get to know Shang-Chi, to get to know the mythos and story and Shang-Chi's corner of the Marvel Universe. This, I just think, does such a wonderful job of mixing the you know wild, awesome mythos side of things, which just feels um, so ancient and otherworldly with Shang-Chi himself and his story, um, his powers, where he stands in the world, how he relates to people, how he talks to people. I just love it so much. 
I was also really blown away and, and, you know, also reminded of the talent of both DK and Philip Tan. Um, we've definitely uh, enjoyed some of their work before, but I think they are putting in excellent, excellent stuff here. Um, it's just so obvious that the editorial team is, you know, really, really revving up for this, really making sure that everyone is putting in some of their best work today. And I think it just totally comes off the texture, the movement, um, the character work, it's all in here. Um, I think it is a really, really ideal number one for Shang-Chi, where he is in 2020, um, how people are ready to get into Shang-Chi stories. Um, I just think it, it just starts it off on a pitch perfect note. Uh, I love this book a lot. We're going to have writer Jean Lun Yang on This Week in Marvel, I believe this week. And it's great. It's a really fun book. I've read ahead through issue three. So um, I'm super into this title. Awesome. All right, let's move on to Star Wars Doctor Afra number four, written by Alyssa Wong, with pencils by Marika Cresta, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Uh, this one sees all kinds of wild stuff happening for uh, Afra and her crew. They've sort of been split up. Things are going terribly, terribly wrong for Afra, but there's also elements of her finding humor and hope in trickery, which is kind of like the the Afra mantra. It's like hope asterisk with a little trickery uh which you know uh, leads to like the last bit of the book where she's like uh, i really really hope this works which knowing her it will but something terrible will happen to someone directly next to her ain't that always the case <laughs> um all right we're heading back to the mighty mu for strange academy number three it's written by scotty young with art by umberto ramos colors by edgar delgado and letters by vcs clayton cowles um right when this series was launched there was a lot of talk about how the editorial team and scotty and umberto all uh made visits to new orleans to take in the city because it was really important to them to faithfully depict what such a special place is like. Um, it's such a perfect uh, decision to place Strange Academy where it's placed in New Orleans. Um, this issue, I think, is the best uh, realization yet of all of that work that this entire team has put into it. We get so many different uh, angles on the city and the people that make the place as special as it is. And then you have the Strange Academy kids who are kind of walking underneath the trees and looking up and they have, you know, these big eyes that are taking it all in all at the same time. These characters are so familiar. The story feels so well paced and well planned. And as we just continue to make new moves in this story and in this little corner of the universe, um, it somehow becomes more mysterious and more familiar and kind of that warm, nice feeling where you just want to go there. You want to hang out with these characters. You want to experience what they're experiencing. I just think it's a magical combination, pun intended. It's really, really, really great stuff. I love this issue. I love this book. Uh, for anybody who is making a trip to New Orleans at any point, uh, there's a great comic shop called More Fun Comics. And then go to uh, my wife's, one of her best friends uh, owns a coffee shop called Zotz, Z-O-T-Z. Oh, yeah. It's on Oak Street in New Orleans. It is away from all the crazy hubbub, but really great coffee and a great comic shop, especially tons of like back issue bins and cool stuff and toys and like 
really like awesome like oh i can't believe i found this there um we've got one more book to talk about this week and it is x factor number four written by our guest this week leah williams pencils by carlos gomez colors by israel silva letters by vcs joe caramagna and this is part two of ten of swords uh if you have missed the first part of ten of swords which is creation which came out last week you really should jump on that bandwagon that the book is great uh but it like bad stuff happened to apocalypse and richter and Rockslide and banshee and all like all the x-men basically got their butts handed to them by the uh the sort of citizens slash mutants of araco I can't get into the like details of what this all means because it's going to be <laughs> nonsense to anyone not reading X-Men books. And if you're reading the X-Men books, you probably know the story because you had to read it two or three times to really like <laughs> soak it in. Yeah. Um, it rules. This issue has some big, big stuff. It's like re it's like adding new bits of mythology to what is going on to the mutants of Krakoa, to how they do things, to protocols to sort of like the way mutant kind functions and works going forward um and it's there's a lot of big stuff in this issue it's you know the chapter two of a 22 part series so like there's a lot of roadway ahead of us but this is still setting up like okay possibilities important things ramifications that i am sure will come you know down the path and if you are an x-factor reader and you're like wait a minute why is there a crossover in the middle of my book with like this cool investigation team don't worry you got polaris in here and you know important character stuff for um the members of the team but this is you're part of a bigger world right now you are part of ten of swords and it's um it's cool. It also has uh, the last line of the book, not just the prose pages, but the comic pages of the book is said by Magic, the uh, the main character of the book that we're going to be talking about. So it feels like perfect timing that Leah is on to talk about that in, uh, in a week where this issue came out. Totally. Um, that's what we have on sale for individual issues this week, September 30th. Uh, also, Coming to your local comic shop for collections. We have Conan Chronicles Epic Collection Horrors Beneath the Stones, Daredevil by Chip Zdarsky, Volume 4, End of Hell. Ditko is Strange, League of Legends, Zed, Spider Man Loves Mary Jane, The Secret Thing, Venom, Rex, Marvel Select, and X Men Avengers Onslaught, Volume 2. Yeah, and then on Marvel Unlimited, uh, the very fantastic giant size X-Men Nightcrawler issue, the first issue of Hellions, which I freaking love. I really, really love that book. Uh, we've got some Immortal Hulk on Marvel Unlimited, The Road to Empire, Kree Scroll War, which is really great. So um, expect, you know, Empire stuff to potentially start hitting Marvel Unlimited soon. Um, yeah, there's there's some really great stuff. Oh, second issue of Wolverine. Man, it's a good week on Marvel Unlimited. Now. All that said, it is time for the reading club. Uh, Tucker, I know you have to take care of something. I am going to go talk to Leah right now, and then we'll come back for the end of the show. Yeah, I'll see you later. Leah, how the hell are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Uh, I'm great. I uh, have a cat that I am trying to stop from 
careening into the microphone and destroying the podcast. So that's going to be a, a constant for this entire podcast. I, you can oh, see I see her little face. She's yeah. so cute. She's a pretty one. Um, yeah, so we are here to talk about the 1983 uh, limited series Magic, which is written by Chris Claremont. It's got art by John Buscema and Sal Buscema and Ron Friends and a whole bunch of amazing folks. Uh, and this was your pick, which... I am not surprised, which uh, knowing <laughs> your love for magic and your work with magic in the past, but tell us a little bit about why you chose this this story. I didn't want to, I don't, it, it felt weird going for something that I've written <laughs> and, and I wanted to shine some more light on like a Marvel comic that has truly deeply affected me and and I've kind of imprinted on it and um one of the earliest examples of this is this uh mini series that just blew me away and it's something that I revisit a lot and it is so touching and and meaningful and honest about um subjects that you wouldn't normally see in a Marvel comic because it's raw and it's real and it's it's a coming of age story um but it's just so like beautiful and tender i i knew it, it would be a joy to talk about this mini series with you yeah do you remember the first time you read it i was working in a comic book shop and um i gorged on everything magic related because you know working in the shop, I saw her on covers and, and in books, but I, and, and don't tell this to my, my X-Men editors or the other X-Men writers, I kind of had like a, a sideways entry into X-Men comics because when you're coming into comics for the first time, um, especially when you like weren't raised around them, X-Men continuity can be very intimidating. What? It is not. <laughs> That's a wild statement to throw out there. How dare you? <laughs> so it is um, not the most like accessible uh, licensed property for, for newcomers, or I should say it wasn't at the time. And um, I, I thought like, okay, well, challenge accepted because I... I like the way these characters look, they look so rad. And and what I did was ended up reading a lot of um, kind of peripheral stories. So not X-Men itself, I had to work my way up to that. But I started with Excalibur, which is also like love of my life and um, X-Factor Investigations and uh, Uncanny X-Force and all of this other stuff and the magic miniseries. Um, so that was the first time that I read it and it stuck with me. And then I reread it uh, a couple years ago in preparation for writing What If Magic, which is like a continuation that is set right after this miniseries and being able to kind of take a branching path out of it and contribute to something that has inspired me so much is just one of the, the greatest honors of my life for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, talking about this magic book, I had read the first issue not too long ago. I think I was I, I read the first issue um, 
right around when your your what if came out um but i for some reason i never finished it and so this was my first time reading the entire uh run through even though i've known her history and you know, oh my it's, god it's so well you know so well told through every time you know you understand what magic is man this was great i'm so glad I, you chose yeah, this yeah i'm so excited to hear your thoughts now as somebody who who just completed the miniseries for the first time i i was blown away um every time i revisit this were you surprised by by this at all um i was surprised by some of the telling and and sort of some of the the moments so the telling in, in sort of like the unfolding of Ilyana growing up and and sort of the twists and turns and then those moments you know when when Ilyana is she sees her brother's body after sim has oh, uh, gosh, like yeah. the whole sim situation i was like oh my gosh i was like that is one it's of the brutal. most heartbreaking. Yeah, it's such a like, and, and I I think of Ilyana in a lot of different ways because when I was like hardcore early teens reading, she died because of the legacy virus, and so there was like this part of Ilyana over here because of that, and then there was um you know the character who was older and and part of the New Mutants and stuff like that, not having this part of her story um sort of was a detriment and so now it fills in so much of like how friggin badass and cool yes and, and awesome yes she is. i i totally agree and it, it adds to her mythology in in such an enriching and meaningful way um where you you understand a lot of her current behaviors in in hindsight where like she is this really badass figure but that doesn't come from nowhere it comes from growing up in hell <laughs> and you know being abused for for most of her childhood this is a traumatic experience she grew up in hell and she didn't know words like exploit or abuse or she didn't know that any of what was happening to her, Belasco's grooming, she didn't know it wasn't right. She didn't learn the words for these things until she came out of limbo and and saw that experience reflected through her brother's eyes as something horrific. But meanwhile, she had already kind of built up this armor, like literally and figuratively, emotionally, um, it's incredible the depth it adds to her character for me. Yeah. You, you talk about the grooming and the, you know, exploiting and, and the, just the abuse and everything. And the way that Chris writes her and writes her, um, her captions and her thoughts about things and where she's yes. like conflicted and it's, and then you're reminded that, you know, she's at any point in the story between six and, you know, 14 years old. Oh, God. And having yeah. to go through that was so upsetting. Yes. Oh, my gosh. It's it, so upsetting. It levels me. And I, I think more so now, because uh, I guess the first time I, I read this, I was like 19 or so. And, and you know, now... Uh, I 
I too know more of these words like abuse and exploit and grooming. And I'm looking back at these captions that I, I didn't fully grasp the the depth of them, the meaning. And I'm just like, oh my God, this is, this hurts my heart. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> she went through something absolutely horrific and, and didn't break from it. Yeah. And then you, you know, you, Take that that part of things with Belasco, who's just the worst. I mean, the gosh, worst, the worst. And then you, on top of that, take what is it? One, two, four of Ilyana's closest family, and systematically watch her have to confront them, confront this like twisted version of them, and and kill them. And like then just that's on top of. Everything she's been dealing with on a personal side with this other guy. How is like the fact that we have this character who has come through the other side and we've been able to tell these stories with her. That is both true for someone who has gone through things, but like we can build on she's this amazing superhero and leader and all this other stuff. We've got this fully layered character and and she's not broken completely is. Yeah. The the qualities you're describing, like the the way she's this amazing hero now, despite her background, it doesn't come from a place of like coldness. She's not calloused or shut off from the world. She feels things, you know, she's she's not broken from her trauma at all, but it's it's also not something that she's overcome and you know, left behind her completely. She she carries this experience with her in all things that she does and everywhere she goes. And it affects her decisions, like, to this day in, in the current run of New Mutants. It's it's just a part of her personality. And, and I guess is what can come across as, as like a fun and kind of feral stabby lovable character but once you learn where that comes from it's like oh god this is my daughter now (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's a testament to to the creators too who remember to let her carry this and to be a symbol of strength through something so horrible you know it's not i don't want to get too crazy but like my mom is a survivor of abuse uh, of like uh domestic abuse and it's something that she carries with her all the time and it's something that you know is very present in my mind about our lives and stuff like that and so you know i look at characters who have gone through these things and i'm you know it's just it's important and it's i am very glad that we, we represent them in, in multiple ways and remember that as we, we tell their stories and build upon their mythology and, and learn to love them in new ways, but also remember that like there is something at the core that is so very, very hurt. Yeah. And um, like your mom, I'm also a survivor of domestic abuse. So the difference between me reading this when I was 19 and reading this now is I, I understand the reality of, of what Belasco is doing to her, not just in the overt ways, but the like specific and systematic manipulation. It is so authentic, the portrayal of abuse in this miniseries, that 
when I was rereading it and and taking notes for what if magic, I uh one of my notes was who was in Claremont's life? Like what what woman was he talking to about this? Because yeah. it's it is such a specific experience and it's harrowing. Let's uh, let's start getting into the issues themselves as we go along, um, because the first issue is uh, we've got John Buscema, who is, you know, legend and how like the that double page splash. That's like the, the second or third page um, in the book is so cool and so beautiful. And it really like the colors and everything about it really struck me um, as a reminder of like. This is a cool big moment in X-Men history. Yeah. Do you mean like the little girl lost? Uh, the, yeah, page? the title page. Yeah. That's the double page splash. Yeah. I I love um, story title pages like this. It, they're, they're my favorite. And uh, the original run of Excalibur did a lot of these too. And they're always just so additive to the story and fun but this is like it you get the captions you get her inner monologue you get demons you get Belasco. it's it's just so much fun yeah. the demon designs are so good in this book they're weird and like freaky uh, i think john does a lot of the, the he lays a lot of the groundwork and maybe it was some of it was also in the uncanny stuff that like preceded this but I think everybody, all the artists have some fun with creating just gnarly looking creatures. In, in yeah. Limbo. But they also, there's something at the same time, a bit humanizing about them. Yeah. It, it, that may sound weird, but they're not perfectly scary or perfectly demon-esque. They, they have different faces and, and kind of flaws. So they feel real or, yeah. or they feel realer because of it. Um, and then we've got our first like glimpse of the dark child part of things. We've got uh, naked swimming Aurora. We've got all kinds of like wild little scenes here and there. This book, you know, it is four issues. It takes place in limbo, but over a course of seven to eight years. But it feels like just everything is so jam-packed into each page it's so epic it uh it makes such good use of the available space like it's it's four issues but it, it feels so much more expansive than four issues yeah i love the idea of a sorceress aurora as well you know that uh, that's a, a cool aspect i don't I don't know if we've ever touched upon that in sort of the main Marvel universe. I think it it hasn't been shown so much as acknowledged that she has um, sorceress capability and, and she could be doing these things. And it's in her bloodline, too. She has ancestors who were, I think, legitimate um, sorcerers and... I I felt the same way about seeing it here. It was just like, yes, this is correct. I I yeah. love it. It, it feels uh, like authentic um, because Aurora is is not just this this goddess. She's also a witch. 
Um, I moved on to issue to the second issue um, just because we get to the showdown, the first showdown with Sim or Sim. You know, you I think of times like, you know, at, at different times, writers and artists, they'll like think about an actor or um, someone they know when they're, you know, creating this character with a very specific cadence and the way they talk and stuff like this. I'm just I'm trying to imagine who Chris sort of like dipped into to create sim as this like nasty because he doesn't talk like someone you would imagine living in limbo yeah that's actually a really great observation and i know that anthony oliviera who's um another marvel writer he studies this exactly and would be able to tell us uh he has this thread on twitter where he's like and we can tell what Claremont was watching on TV at any given time based on like, okay, here's the dialogue. This is this accent, this, this, this. It's the most galaxy brain and, and granular look in, into this. It, it takes a lot of work to research these things. Um, but I, as soon as you said that, I... You are absolutely correct. Oh man, correct. I got to email Anthony then <laughs> and, and ask him if he has any yeah. insight into this one because that's that would be awesome. That is also an amazing idea to start digging into this stuff. Oh, I'm going to see if I can find the yeah. link to that thread so I can Please. send it to you. Um, and then we get into the uh, you know the the training sort quote unquote training montage, which I don't know if you are a Dragon Ball mm-hmm. fan at all, but with Kat and Ilyana going through um, some of their like survival stuff, it reminded me of Piccolo and Gohan from Dragon Ball Z. And it's kind of also a, an abusive, loving relationship, like a weird one, uh, definitely less abusive and less, you know, upsetting than with Belasco, but um, sort of like the survival mode that they go through and what Kat yes. tries to teach Ilyana, um, for me, reminded me of what they did in Dragon Ball. I am not nearly familiar enough with Dragon Ball that I, I wish I was. I know I need <laughs> to be. Um, but I think what you're saying about it being like, this is not an abusive dynamic between them, but it is also not healthy like this is the survival friendship between two people who have been pitted against each other um, for for years, I think, by this point, because we're in the yeah. second issue now. And, and not just pitted against each other, but in this place where they are trained to be ruthless and brutal. They, they have to be this way to survive. Um, it is the very sad and desperate kind of friendship that would likely happen in these kinds yeah. of places. Speaking of sad and desperate, we get to them getting to <laughs> the Belasco's cat Citadel and then Nightcrawler. They have this fight and poor, poor Kurt is all twisted up. And that just that shot, that one panel of Nightcrawler and the sword being just run through from the back. Oh my God. Yes. It's, it's so brutal. <laughs> and I think, too, part of the efficacy and why it's really heart-wrenching to see Kurt this way is because it is 
making him act mm-hmm. like a demon and and really utilizing his demon-esque appearance, which I guess may have been the first instance of this. I know it's been done since then, um, and it's you know built into his mythology at this point with his father's origins and that kind of thing. But for me, this was the first time seeing Kurt act like this and, and behave like a demonic minion. And it, it was yeah, gut-wrenching. It really is. And then he got <laughs> impaled on a sword. <laughs> um, I also love um, Kitty slash Cat slash Kate's use of her phasing power because it's something I always think like the way she could use it offensively and like phasing someone's part of someone's body into the ground is so nasty. I love it. it. Yeah. I think this is the first time that I saw her do that too. <laughs> and it is such a, like a dirty fighting technique, but, but also cunning. It, it makes total sense. Like, yes, trap your opponent. You know, we've got all the, you know, these cool moments and, and these big, battles and sadness and then then poof belasco turns her into a cat and it is just like perfectly evil like abuser mean nasty stuff like he didn't have to do that and he does it anyway yeah and he does it in front of little iliana he takes her only friend and reduces her to like a cat girl on all fours in her skimpy costume, but now she has like whiskers and fur and she's purring at his feet. And it happens in front of Ileana. It's yeah. devastating. Um, that gets us into the third issue, which opens with like this beautiful first page, another title page here, uh, the Soul Quest issue, where Belasco is looking over Ileana's shoulder as she is sort of using her magics on this tiny little rabbit creature called squidge and it is you've got the candle in the foreground and i mean i wish we had the scripts for this just to see what that looked like in terms of chris's work and then you know here i think this is a ron friends yeah it's a ron friends issue yeah i would have loved to see the scripting for this because it is so like it is epic in scale and and in story but also the details are, are meticulously accounted mm-hmm. for in every single yeah. panel. Um, it's, you know, really interesting as a, we've been talking about with, you know, seeing magic and how she develops and grows and, and becomes, you know, the character we know more of throughout this story, not just in the way she ages, but like her grasp of the, you know, mystic arts, how she pulls from Belasco, how she pulls from, uh, Aurora, how she pulls from like reading books and all this other stuff and how they like space that out and develop her, I think is such a, you know, a, it's a simple, subtle thing that's sort of layered under all the other things. Like the, this book has a ton of layers of, of different things that you pull apart yeah. as you go through. Yeah, absolutely. I don't remember. Do magics, you know, her mutant power is these teleportation discs that she, she casts. Are, do those in in continuity always she can go through time and space? No, not not quite. So the way that the the stepping discs work is they they're teleportation circles 
Um, but the time will only be manipulated if she is teleporting to a place where like time is measured differently mm. or time passes differently, like limbo. It's less so her own time manipulation and like limbo itself operates by by rules of you know like those old legends about when people would get spirited away to like a fae world mm. and and eat the food and to them it would feel like only 20 minutes but when they exit these places you know apparently they've been gone for 30 years that's what that's what limbo is like yeah it's it's a it's such a great like storytelling device where she ages seven years in in this eight years or whatever it is and it's like 30 seconds in the real world you could do so yeah, much with that yeah um we get more of sim and then we get the big fight between cat and iliana and it's i i love the layout of this page well there's a couple pages but they're they're like grappling and the big like finale to their battle oh yeah and kate gets more and more feline and and literally feral and and less able to communicate like her old self to iliana she bares her teeth at Mm. her it's brutal and then the the big snap with the you know drawn in you know in the background sound effect of iliana having to break her best friend's neck and it's just like come on why why do this to this poor girl it's a metaphor. It's abuse. This is what it is. Yep. It's exactly how it happens. You you break off contact with all of your loved ones because this person you trust has managed to like gaslight you and convince you it's what you have to do. And that's exactly what Velasco has done to Ileana. At the beginning of the fourth issue, which is called Dark Child, um, Sal Busema takes over on art, and it's sort of a, a little bit of a similarity to the beginning of the limited series we talked about with the cool, you know, demons and and the designs. And Sal has, I just, I keep looking at this one, this like pink and purple demon that has tentacle legs and like this weird craggy head and these little yes. weird arms. I'm like, I want to know that creature's story. Like, what's his story? He, and I love it too, because he was in, um, so like that very first double page spread, he was in that too. Um, you know, we've got the the death of Aurora and, and sort of um, the sadness around that and how um, Ileana has to kill, again, someone she loves and all the abusive stuff. A big sad point happens shortly after that with the death of Aurora's garden and then Ileana actually escaping limbo and talking to her parents. Yeah. This is particularly gut-wrenching because, you know, by this point in the mini-series, she's been through so much. It only gets worse. You really want her to catch a break. She looks so much older now, the way that time has passed differently for her in limbo, that when she approaches her family... They're like, we don't recognize you. And and they spurn her. They turn her away. This is another thing that happens as, as a survivor of abuse. Your, your friends and family, they don't recognize you once you've been put through this process of like being gaslighted and, and transformed. 
And the way that it feels from a personal level is, okay, well, now everybody around me is treating me like a monster, which is what this guy has been convincing me I am the whole time. I must actually be something monstrous then. I must be something terrible to to have people react to me this way. But of course, it's all calculated. It's yeah. this is by Oof. design. Man, heavy ass series that you, for, you know, like an awesome little girl, you know, surviving horrible stuff. It is it's a lot. But we do get one of my favorite sequences is when Ilyana is like grow, like really finally she's becoming a teenager and she's practicing magic and trying to survive. And then she figures out that her story is different from Aurora's. Her survival path is different from everyone else's. And she has to harness different parts of who she is and what she needs to do to get past things. And, and, mm-hmm. and I think that's such a beautiful way for her to regain her power and become who she is. Oh, completely. I love it so much because we go from her, you know, she feels like a monster at this point. She has been trained, she's been groomed to think that she is something awful, that she is incapable of creating something new. It kills her that she cannot create an acorn the way her beloved mentor did the way Aurora did she cannot make a simple acorn so she's trying and she's trying and she's at the point now in the series where she'll slip into her demonic form for the first time like her eldritch form and it's because she is the gateway to to hell on earth so sometimes that shows she is the only thing standing between like hell on earth (laughs) and not that Um, then it occurs to her, like, well, creation magic, this is a part of, of my soul, of my essence, and I maybe shouldn't be trying to make an acorn. And so she makes a big sword, like a big badass sword, and we get to see the soul sword for the very first time, and it's just this, like chill inducing oh my god moment because out of all the things she could have pulled out of her soul all of the like tangible objects in the universe it is this badass sword that is the same size as her (laughs) and that's when you know like oh she's gonna be okay (laughs) like we're gonna get out of this yeah there's a there's a wonderful panel uh, it's on the bottom left of one of the pages where she's gripping the sword and she's sort of got this look on her face of joy and relief and and like anger and frustration. And it's so many emotions. Um, I, I really have come to appreciate Sal Buscema's work so much in the last couple of years. And oh, my gosh. Yeah. Looking, looking at this, I was like, yes, this rules. And then she goes and she just tears stuff up it's awesome and we have earned it by this point like the emotional devastation the first three issues and the beginning of this issue have wreaked upon us by this point when she gets that sword and she gets her empowerment back and it doesn't come from anybody else it comes from her 
Like, when she starts swinging that sword and bringing chaos down on Belasco's home, it is the best feeling. It is so cathartic. Yeah, and, like, seeing her having leveled up at this point to where Sim comes running and he's about, you know, he's he's tormented her for years. He killed her brother, all this stuff. And in one stroke, she slices open yeah. his belly and he's done. Two panels. <clears throat> he gets two panels and he's done. Rules. It's so good. <laughs> I'm getting fired so up talking good. about it. It's great. Yeah, same. Oh, man. And then she, you know, she faces this this big like crossroads and proves that she is so much stronger than anyone could have imagined. And she she's so Oh, happy. absolutely. And it's it's part of what makes this ending so glorious too because, you know, she's confronting her abuser and he's like, "You're a monster. You're awful." And she's like, "Yeah, you made me that way. Bye. <laughs> You're going to pay right now." Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah, it's so good. I like the the just the last Two caption boxes are an ending can also be a beginning of and it really is, you know, this is what almost almost 40 years ago uh, when this came out. And um, I think, you know, magic has become such a like a core character for the X-Men over the last especially over the last like 10, 15 years. So good. Uh, will we see Ilyana and the Soul Sword in Ten of Swords? Oh yeah. I think when we were talking about like who's who who are our swords? Um the givens, the ones that everybody just automatically agreed on first names out of our mouths were Ileana and Aurora. Heck yeah. It's going to be great. Um yeah, well, I'm looking forward to more of Ten of Swords. I read um part 2, which was your your first part of the the run. It was good. I was excited like just i'm just this is my favorite thing like big sprawling x-men crossovers is like just injected into my veins the creation is out literally today as i record this and oh i can't wait for everybody to read the rest and see iliana just be glorious with the sword yeah leah thanks so much for joining us here on marvel's pull list thank you so much for having me and once again, big thanks to Leah Williams, who is amazing. Uh, Tucker, everything uh, everything kosher on your end? Oh, things are great. So the reason that we got a little bonus extra Ryan there is because uh, when we were set to do that interview, um, I got a grocery delivery. Wanted to go grab it. Boom. Come back upstairs. Walking up the stairs. A nice glass jar of pasta sauce and some sort of... Uh, like ch- chicken sauce, tangine, Moroccan sauce, fell out the bag, smashed on the landing of <laughs> the stairs as I was coming up, and I started losing my mind. I immediately knew this is terrible timing. This is a Mr. Bean-esque <laughs> moment for me. So I had to come up, put the groceries down, grab stuff to clean it. There's like little bits of glass. I'm worried about people's dogs and stuff. There are like old folks who live in my building. So I'm worried about them like slipping and stuff. I'm trying to stay distance from folks who are around me, whatever. I can wear my mask, of course. Just a real fun time for me. Um, I was having, to be honest, a really great day before that. And then as I was scheduled to talk to one of truly my favorite writers working right now, uh, I get that little bit of uh, chicken scented goodness. Um, that I'm now wafting through my nose. 
Um, uh, but uh, it's all good. We're all fine. Ryan, of course, is the master. So we were all in good hands. Gosh. We have to, this is the end of the episode, wow. right? Well, look, <laughs> you cleaned up the mess. Everything's fine. Everybody's okay. You're <sighs> okay. It's okay. It's going to be fine. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. This episode of Marvel's Polis was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, Amar Daniel, and Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And of course, Polis audio development manager is Brad Barton, a.k.a. the king of Tangine. We'll <laughs> talk to him real soon. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe. <laughs>